Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined, as usual, by our Managing Editor, Ash Milton. Hey, everyone. So, if you've all been paying attention, in the news, there's been a peasant uprising in the financial markets. It may or may not have been put down yet, but we're going to talk about it. (laughs) And now it's uh, actively going back down. According to the lines I'm seeing scrolling across screens, we'll see. We'll see. It, you, you don't. You don't know how it's gone until sort of the financial statements at the end of the year, right? And how many bankruptcies are there, and so on. Anyways, so we've been talking about this internally with the Palladium community. We had some great conversations. Uh, lots of people tuned in to really try to figure out what's going on with this. We think we learned some things. We think we've. We think we've sort of you know, gotten smarter, uh, which is, of course, the purpose of, of all these conversations. But yeah, we wanted to share it with with all, all of you listeners. And so Ash and I are going to talk about this, the, the, the issues around this idea of a peasant uprising in the financial markets. That's how we're describing it. Obviously, what we're describing is this short squeeze with GameStop and other companies against some of these hedge funds who were betting against these brick and mortar companies as a result of COVID. They were shorting them. They were shorting them actually to quite an insane extent. Someone did the analysis on the financials of these companies. The short was not actually justified. People started piling in because they knew it was going to get squeezed. Them piling in made it even more likely it was going to get squeezed. People kind of kept piling in not just for financial reasons, but because it was punishing Wall Street, because it was an expression of, you know, anger against the system or whatever, and and because of the memes. I, I think this will be probably the last anyone listening to this episode hears of it too, given we had a great community salon on this, but we, you know, I, I think that the interesting thing about this, as with a lot of what's happening right now, is not the event itself, it's the signals behind it or the thing that it is a signal of maybe so while this was going on we were talking about this and trying to figure out if it means anything important overall i mean so first of all i think we've talked about this before i'm not sure but i think this is an extension of a lot of the populist energy that has been underlying things like trump QAnon etc. I mean, I don't mean to like put it in the same bucket. I don't mean it's like, oh, yeah, it's the same people. And like, you know, some people are saying nasty things about the about the people squeezing the the hedge funds. I think that this is not so much a political thing as it is a a mimetic possession uh, that's coordinating a bunch of people. The point is more that there's this underlying energy of people kind of getting mad at the system. A lot of people, you know, haven't been doing very well since the financial crisis or since basically stagnation in the 70s. There's there's a lot of people kind of in that position of, of not doing very well and fairly mad at the system that expresses itself in a number of different ways. I mean, that's just one story of, of where it's coming from. It's possible there are other stories. You know, the internet has opened up the possibility for people to talk to each other, form new kinds of consciousness about what's going on. That opens the door for all kinds of new social effects. Um, but th- there's this underlying trend of there's being more and more of these, you know, I'm, I'm sort of calling them peasant uprisings. That, that's sort of half joking, right? And you have a bunch of these incidents over the last, say, five years 
perhaps longer, that point to this this kind of fervent energy. And I, I just I think this is this is the next iteration of the same thing. I remember I don't for, I don't remember whether we talked about it on the podcast or not, but when Trump was on the way out, it, it seemed obvious to us that this is not the end of of whatever energy it was behind Trump. It's not going to be like, oh yeah, you know, we got Trump out now. It's everything's back to business as usual. It's like, no, America is not in business as usual. We are in a very uh, extraordinary situation. Anyway, so this is this is an extension of that. That's my first observation, and and you know, a lot of the memes are, are continuous and so on. Anyway, so so we wanted to think though about about what does this mean for you know, the direction of society overall. One one thought we had was this represents a further and more open and less sophisticated politicization of the markets. So there's always this sense that there's winners and losers. Who's the winner and who's the loser is as much about political influence and political negotiating position as it is about, you know, economic efficiency or whatever. When you have a sophisticated civilization, the forms of competition, which you can call political competition, that take place through the market are generally sophisticated forms of competition that serve productive ends for the overall order. You know, you have some general social contract or or social order, some arrangement of power and, and who gets what in society, and that thing has its overall interests. And often those are you know, very close to the interests of the ruling class, but but the, it has its overall interests. And you have within society much structure that serves those interests. And, and that's supposed to be what the financial system is for, right? It the, the story is, okay, the financial system is allocating capital to the most useful things so that the pie is growing overall so that everyone gets more stuff tomorrow. And... That's the general story. That's the, that's sort of when things are working, when things are in that sophisticated mode. But increasingly over the past few years, maybe longer, we've seen increasing politicization of I- these institutions in new ways that that break their original logic and replace it with a much cruder sort of friend enemy kind of logic. And this financial uprising is a bit of an example of that. It's no longer entirely about you know what's the good market play here and and where it would have been political before in a friend enemy sense that would be you know this this billionaire hedge fund is going to war with that billionaire hedge fund they're just trying to screw with each other for some reason but but this is more like a much more open much more crude you know let's let's wreck wall street versus let's wreck retail and at least that's that's one dimension to this thing. That's obviously not the end all be all of what's going on here. So there's this sense in which these institutions like finance, like science, like the press, you know, like the democratic process are succumbing to this crude polarization. And as that happens, you get I, one of the drivers of that is this sense of increasingly existential politics and increasingly zero sum politics. And as you get that acceleration of politicization as a result of that, you're actually breaking down the sophisticated logic of these institutions, making politics even more zero sum because the, the systems that are growing the pie are no longer working. So that's kind of a pessimistic take on this whole thing. It's, it's an extension of that process that there's nothing that's really going to change that. that. That doesn't sort of 
immediately obviously apply to this because it's, you know, it's just a bunch of Reddit memers. It wasn't Trump supporters. It wasn't Bernie supporters. It wasn't it wasn't obviously a left right political thing. I, I, I think you can say, though, that it was an up down political thing in the sense that it was top versus bottom like class war. Yeah, the 2010s are back again. <laughs> right. And the, the thing about that is, you know, even if it's initially that, the system as it stands is very sophisticated and very good at recuperating that kind of energy and turning it into left-right. You know, this is an important factor in how the system maintains its stability is it takes that top-to-bottom class war energy and says, hey, let's transmute that energy through a variety of means into a left-right division, which is a more evenly matched thing. And and I mean, the cynical the cynical kind of reading of it is, oh, yeah, you know, the the system wants the ruling class to be divided or sorry, the, uh, the 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 working class to be divided. You know, maybe these people work, maybe they don't. But but, you know, what we call the working class, the, generally the bottom of society, they want them to be divided, fighting each other and not fighting the system. And that's an obvious kind of criteria for having a stable system is that you don't have everyone trying to rise up against the system. So this is one of the mechanisms that our society uses to maintain that political order is it transmutes up down political energy to left right political energy. And so the way the way this comes into this is this was not a left right thing, but if it continues to be a factor in how markets are used and how markets are played, I would predict that the tactics here get recuperated and the energy gets recuperated into a left-right thing. And it becomes, you know, finance gets a little bit less rational and becomes a little bit more political, but political in the usual way of the house always wins. And you get kind of the, the enemies of the regime sort of taking the brunt of the impact there, even if it didn't start that way. And so that's and, and you see similar things with rioting, right? It's like, okay, rioting is, you know, the voice of the voiceless. You have people trying to rise up. They have people trying to smash the system. But then it becomes recuperated into this left-right thing and the the things getting smashed up and the, the things being torn down and what the energy is being used for, you know, starts to look an awful lot like the usual politics that that actually is what sustains the system. Anyway, so that's, that's kind of an overview of the political read of this is that if this continues to be a thing, I would predict that it gets recuperated at the expense of the financial system, but to the benefit of the powers available to the system for maintaining its political order. Yeah, I want to elaborate on something there. I would even disagree that it'll be at the expense of the financial system. And let me kind of, I think that analysis is basically correct, but let's, I think we can retell it according to something we've observed before, which is that the disintegration of society often happens from the top down. The way that we can describe that is, as we've said here, friend-enemy distinctions start to increase, you know, kind of when the regime is established and powerful and the polity is basically united, those dynamics are meant to be between those within the polity and those outside. But what happens is a bunch of factions start to grow uh, fighting over the scraps of political order, right? Each one controlling their own turf. And so when that happens, you basically have this effect where any event has to kind of become recuperated, not in the way that that term is usually used, 
right? Like when people talk about recuperation, usually means the creation of fake opposition or, or, you know, you take authentic opposition and you kind of like bribe them to end up ultimately joining the system or at least their ends kind of end up serving the system's ends. What's happening here is actually slightly distinct, right? Because the major centers in the society are now in conflict with each other. What happens is that each disruptive event like this is obviously going to benefit some and disbenefit others. And so when that happens, the incentive is to take that event and use it as proof that the other side is uh, actually doing this. You know, the, the event is basically a front for them. So in this case, maybe it's uh, you, you have all these dangerous forces in the society. They're a threat to the the liberal democratic order, and they're actually just using this investment scheme as a front in order to try and manipulate markets to continue destabilizing the society. And this is kind of a different type of recuperation. It's not like normal recuperation seems to be something like chaotic opposition that gets recuperated into order. This is more like opposition being recuperated into chaos, right? The chaos that's rippling out from the center of the thing, from this, from the disintegrating center, ends up basically realigning other conflicts in the society into expressions of this kind of higher level conflict. And the reason this is dangerous, even it becomes dangerous for ordinary people, is that there is no conflict that is kind of private in the sense of not really being a concern of power. Uh, eventually, almost every conflict in the society, even like normal interactions between people, end up becoming actually expressions of some kind of dangerous factional divide. And I think that's almost where where we're getting to now, right? Where there is no such thing as a private conflict. All conflicts are existential expressions of of power competition at the top. The The, the term used recuperation, I think, is correct. But I think it's important to recognize that this isn't recuperation into order. It's basically recuperation into like a higher level conflict. And this has very different ways of playing out than recuperation by kind of a theoretically strong regime. Yeah, I mean, I mean, about about sort of the recuperation of of what had formerly been private conflicts into these public kind of top level conflicts. You see this with with office politics these days and, you know, what people call council culture and all that, where a lot of these pretexts that are manufactured in the course of top-level elite conflict become reflected in sort of lower-level office politics and companies. And it's like, oh, I don't like that guy. You know, he stole my lunch one time or like whatever, didn't clean my desk after he used it. And so, you know, maybe I'm going to make some accusation and the accusation is going to be a political accusation. And and that's interesting, just how the when you have that that division at the top and these these kind of weaponized memes trickling down through society, they end up actually um, ordering all other conflict in society along those lines. With respect to the use of the term recuperation, yeah, the, the, I guess the most the most sort of orthodox form of recuperation is when someone you know has some grievance with the system and they make a lot of noise about it and they starting to attract a lot of energy and then the system kind of does some jujitsu such that that person maybe doesn't quite have their beef just with the system anymore but but with maybe part of the system or with 
some of the political enemies of the system or even kind of starts finding a way to articulate their grievance in accordance with the logic of the system. That's kind of the the orthodox thing. I mean, correct me if I've if I've got it wrong there, but I think that's basically like what it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it basically is like you have an a, a movement or a, a cultural practice or an event or you know a symbology that kind of starts as as sort of authentically outside the dominant political order, the dominant ideological order, and in order to neutralize that threat, it becomes part ultimately of that order itself. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, like, don't get us wrong. I, I think I think people hear these very frank discussions of power politics and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the system's so evil, man. But like, no, that's actually a really productive process for society. You want to be actively kind of maneuvering all the energy in society into roughly aiming in the same direction, roughly collaborating, roughly supporting the current system. The key thing, I think the key thing that sort of distinguishes maybe between good recuperation and bad recuperation, at least from the perspective of the person being recuperated, is whether it maintains the teleological core of of the original thing. So like, suppose I have some grievance with the system. I don't know, environmental pollution in the river that I live by, for example. I'm going to start some environmental group. I'm going to make noise about it. I'm going to start putting pressure on people. I'm going to start doing whatever, you know, uh, bribing politicians or, you know, whatever it is people do to get these things done. And, you know, at some point, if I'm not coordinated with the rest of society, that can actually cause a lot of trouble because I can be running around with all this power, uh, stepping on people's toes, smashing up institutions, breaking up the logic of things violating the the implicit assumptions that society relies on to continue itself so that's actually you need you need to recuperate that right and then so the question is okay do we recuperate that in the sense of i get a cushy job for doing this environmental thing but the river stays polluted or do we recuperate it in the sense of like hey this is actually an important issue let's bring this up to the higher levels and figure out a way to have a dialogue and get it fixed and th- those are sort of two possible outcomes, right? One is you just sort of neutralize the thing and such that it does nothing except maybe fulfills the social goals of some of the people who were in the original movement. And the other one is that it maintains its integrity, but stops being adversarial to the system and becomes beneficial to the system. And so that latter thing, obviously, you know, if you have a competent society, that's what you're doing. You're taking all these grievances that exist in society. There's always a bunch of grievances. There's always problems. There's always people who want to solve those problems. And you're sort of systematically redirecting that energy towards productive uses of that energy that are supportive of the system and that actually make things better. That's the ideal version of of recuperation. And that's that's sort of its justification if you were going to put a justification forth. So so in that case, recuperation becomes something more like feedback almost. And, and I'm using that in a, a very broad sense. Like if you fundamentally are viewing your society as two or more entirely divided groups of people, you almost get into the situation where there are two societies at war with each other. Are, are we talking about left, right or up, down? Uh, I mean, anything, right? It could be ethnic, it could be up-down, it could be uh, religious. If the political order is facing opposition and the dynamic between them is such that 
the opposition is going to entirely displace the political order. And maybe the implicit message is that the people grouped under or affiliated with that opposition are going to overthrow and entirely replace the people affiliated with the political order. Then you kind of have this this existential tear in the society where where recuperation in that sense is is almost an ontological thing, right? Like you are taking this opposition that fundamentally exists as a distinct thing from the society itself, and you are convincing it or you're forcing it to join. Yeah, yeah, you're re- you're repairing that tear by some means. Well, you are repairing it, but like you can have the political order actually being, you know, dysfunctional or disordered in some way, and someone tries to fix it, but the people in the political order are effectively able to bribe them to stop doing the actual fixing and just kind of take like a nominal reward. In the system you've laid out here, I would describe it as more like we're actually seeing the more fundamental social reality here. And so there are all these conflicts that can occur in the society, but the way that that opposition ends up functioning when it's recuperated in either sense, I guess, is something more like feedback. Like there are these updates that the political order makes to itself. And so that means that, you know, what follows is not fundamentally separate from the thing that came before. Like it can be iterated somehow, but the the kind of like year zero uh, idea, right, that you can just kind of erase everything that has happened in a society and blank slate the thing pretty much is impossible. Yeah. So so the feedback mechanism, I think like people make a, a lot of noise about feedback mechanisms. They say, oh, you know, a totalitarian or dictatorship like doesn't have a f- any feedback mechanisms. Democracies do have feedback mechanisms. Uh, you know, you need free speech to have a feedback mechanism. There's all kinds of arguments that people have put forward on that. I don't think, you know, necessarily any of those absolute statements are correct, but you definitely do need feedback mechanisms in society to have information moving around about what's important, basically, and 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 what the power wants. And, and by the power, I don't just mean the ruling power, but all the power in society, including the people power, including the power of some other faction that isn't necessarily represented in the regime, et cetera, et cetera. And so these these feedback mechanisms that what I'm describing with recuperation is one of these feedback mechanisms and actually one that if it's done well, it can work really well. It can it can take these energies and say, hey, we're going to reincorporate that into the the slightly updated sort of synthesized ethos of society, the the overall order. And now we fixed a problem and and put sort of built built unity. Right. So that's the ideal outcome of the recuperation process. I think, you know, a lot of revolutionary groups obviously worry a lot about the uh, negative form of recuperation where they just get bought off for social reasons or whatever, but don't actually accomplish their goals. And that's where the idea came from. Right. It came out of, I think, what was the situationist discourse, which is some kind of revolutionary Marxists. Yeah. In the 1968. Right. So a a lot of the kind of. participatory art ad busters type stuff i'm sure a lot of people be familiar with that you know this we see it literally done by marketing agencies yeah and 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 these 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 more revolutionary groups obviously like they don't think there's any such thing as productive compromise with the system i think like you were saying the the year zero thing is a little bit of a spook it's revolution actually doesn't work like that and isn't a good idea done like that 
it's more like you actually want to get recuperated in the positive sense. Like if you're if you're operating some kind of heterodox movement, you have some goals on society. You, you know, you have some some grievance, some thing that is not working properly in society and you want to get that fixed. Obviously, you know, a lot of the time it looks really hopeless and it looks like, oh, we have to replace the whole system, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think the actual goal and the actual productive play is the positive recuperation play, which is we're going to get recuperated. You know, the system is going to compromise with us, but we want to make sure that compromise maintains our integrity and we're not going to try to threaten the integrity of the system in maintaining our integrity and getting our our sort of thing recuperated. So that's that's like just a, an aside on kind of political strategy in light of this recuperation thing. And I think this is something that's really not emphasized in our current discourse on how you get things done in politics the current discourse is like oh yeah man get out on the street and like yell about stuff and then something happens it doesn't talk about as much about the technical dynamics of how the recuperation thing works and and how to do it properly versus improperly and 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 i think that leads to like i think a lot of these you know peasant uprisings as we've been calling them or as i've been calling them come from a failed political education basically like the political education was of the form was of a revolutionary form rather than this recuperative form. And people basically learned the lesson from the American Revolution, from, you know, from the, the rhetoric of the 60s and so on, that like what you really need is to rise up against the man and like, you know, tear down the oppressive system. And, you know, the the elites are evil and like we just need to get rid of them and and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's you know, somehow our society has gotten onto the wrong track there with with how we educate people about how to sort of have their political voices heard. And, and so it's like, you know, kind of unfortunate that people don't know how to do the thing properly, I think. I mean, in my opinion, what's proper is is this sort of positive recuperation thing, which I think actually, if everyone took that approach, I think we can actually like solve a lot of problems in society, but that's not really what we're doing right now. But anyway, so... This was this whole aside on recuperation is just to kind of establish like, okay, that's that's kind of orthodox recuperation. Now I want to talk about this uh, diverting things into the left right conflict as a form of recuperation, which is what we were characterizing or or saying that we might expect if this kind of financial activism from like popular financial activism, if that continues. So the, the way I've described is all very explicit and very conscious in a way. And it's very, you know, if you're getting bought out and but like maintaining the appearance of continuing to do the thing, maybe you're not entirely conscious of that or you're not being explicit about it. Well, but when when we're using this idea or even, you know, the term feedback, um, which might be a useful way to think about it, I don't necessarily mean that this is a conscious process by power. In power, you always have a number of centers that have some kind of system of deals. This is something we maybe discuss later in the show. But you have regimes where there is upheaval to such a radical degree that that system of deals actually changes in decisive ways, right? So France 1760 and France 1860, compare the two, you have a very different set of deals. Russia in uh, 1850, Russia in 1950. You have a very different set of deals. And in each case, there is some 
people from the old regime who managed to, you know, <laughs> make their way into that new system of deals. Like one of my favorite examples is how the Bolsheviks, when they were trying to reconstitute the Russian military, were actually using a lot of czarist officers to form the initial core of the Red Army officers. And so, you know, obviously you were having this transition go on. But if you're uh, the czar or if you're the king, didn't go so well for you. So this kind of feedback doesn't mean that like everyone in power wins. It's not, it's not a kind of passive process in that way. It's an updating of the system of deals in power. And I think that's, that is the fundamental thing going on in the most radical forms of recuperation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, there's, there's a little bit of elite circulation in some of the more extreme examples here, right? Where some segment of the elite actually gets wrecked by the transition and some new segment of potential elites becomes actual elites. And that's just, yeah, again, that's part of the process that can be a very productive thing. Sometimes it's destructive, but it can be productive. I, I generally don't believe in denying the consciousness of things. Um, I think we should just be clear, like when we say that something is conscious or it has a conscious logic to it, that doesn't mean that there's a single mind sitting there like master planning the whole thing. It just means that 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 there is sort of conceptualized teleology. Someone is actually thinking about the thing and there is a teleology and it does work on the basis of uh, some sort of conscious process. I think the conscious action usually being taken is someone deciding to break the old deal and make a new one. But the conscious thing is not always, sometimes it is, but not always the like top level knowing what this is going to look like from A to B. Oh, yeah. You certainly don't necessarily know the result. I mean, like the, the essence of consciousness is that you don't know the result of your own thoughts, right? You don't know it until you think them. Anyways, that's just a pedantic point on consciousness. Back to the left-right recuperation. I think other than this kind of like incorporating something into the system effect, you can also have ways where power acts on the movement or acts on the tactic or acts on the energy to change its nature and change its direction a little bit. And it sort of feels like it's still going along the same momentum, but the momentum has been redirected now, sort of at 90 degrees. And now it's kind of like it's something has convinced it that this other thing is the enemy that it needs to take out. Like, you know, you're going along your nice environmental trajectory and then a bunch of like really friendly, helpful people come in, but like they really insist on, on you know, dealing with environmentalism as like, you know, a, an expression of a larger project of social justice. And actually the most important thing right now is tearing down the capitalist system as represented by these people over here who are not the current elite and or are not like the person polluting the river. And, and that's like this thing has been redirected at 90 degrees into something else. And it sort of feels like it still has its logic intact, but actually it's been diverted. And that happens all the time. And, and again, this is like that process of recuperation from up, down to left, right, or of, or of any particular kind of like grievance vector in society often ends up recuperated onto this le left, right spectrum which means that like, you know, you're fighting it out with these other forces. Now you have a lot of force sort of directed all over the place in society. And then that becomes part of the social control mechanism, first of all, in kind of diverting all that energy from having to be directly dealt with in, in either recuperative or, or like crushing sense. It doesn't have to be directly dealt with because it's fighting someone else, so to speak, other than the system. 
And it also, uh, so it's like it defers it, but then also now you have all this spare energy directed in this partisan way, which can be used. You know, if you're sitting there in charge and, and you're thinking, man, this guy's really being a problem. Uh, we need to do something about him. Then, you know, if everything's divided on this left right thing, you all you always have a bunch of a bunch of uh, force kind of directed around in society that can just be redirected and just take. Well, hey, he's the problem for uh, these other people over on the other side. Like you just kind of construct that narrative and then suddenly you're able to get something done or you know, that, that's just one example. This is sort of an adversarial example, but there's all kinds of things that can be done with this kind of left-right energy. Anyways, I, I don't think the left-right thing is actually that good of a system. I think it works. It has stability, we could say. Like, it's lasted since, since some guys sat across from other guys during the French Revolution. So something seems to be happening. I mean, it's it's got a utility or it wouldn't stick around, right? But I, I think I sort of feel like it's, again, it's utility is to sort of defer these productive conflicts that, that you know, maybe are a little bit uncomfortable, but actually, if you handle them properly, they, they lead to more productive results. Anyways, that's a very long aside on the idea of recuperation. The point being, maybe this, this financial thing, I could see it getting recuperated into a left-right thing and becoming part of like the activist machinery of the system, the same way, say, rioting has has been as seen last summer. And so that's just an interesting possibility. But I think it just kind of continues that general story of the cruder logic prevailing over the fine-tuned, sophisticated logic of particular institutions as a result of, of kind of like the political situation getting more and more uh, zero-sum and 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 dire that's a you know it's kind of an unfortunate thing to predict but i i sort of think that either this kind of energy goes nowhere or becomes you know a recuperated part of the system as as with everything and and unfortunately not necessarily in a in a useful way like i don't think this is going to result in some like positive reform on wall street or like positive reform of retail finance or something yeah i, I mean the actual financial crisis didn't quite result in that anyway so a few a few Reddit memers are not going to either. And to be fair, I don't think that they're actually trying to do that. No, I mean, again, like like this political education problem, right? It's like people's in, people's intention with the thing is not, hey, we have a grievance. Let's like figure out how to express our grievance. Maybe put a bit of pressure behind it, but then ultimately get recuperated in a productive sense. That's not what they're doing, right? It's it's peasant uprising. It's it's like. Let's let's wreck the people who have been oppressing us. Let's like strike back, even if it hurts us in in the meantime, and and that can be maybe useful in some larger play. But but it doesn't look like that's what's happening. But if we want to tie off that that stream of thought, I think we've kind of reached probably past the end point Beating here. That horse I'd death. like to yeah, yeah I, I'd like to delve a little into the information asymmetries thing. So one of the productive concepts that comes out of the line of thought we've just described is recognizing this idea of a system of deals being very important to the way that power works. And let me tell you kind of a story about how power comes into stability. What you get in any society, as you said, there are a bunch of people who have such power, such a kind of power. Maybe it's maybe if they command a loyalty of a lot of people, maybe they have religious authority, maybe they have economic power, maybe they have the loyalty of a certain region 
right? Uh, there can be any number of things going on here. And you see this kind of right as, as societies go through what we call development, right? Which really just means where they reach higher and higher levels of political order, right? So we go from a bunch of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in England to all of England, then to Britain, then to an entire empire. Political power is able to operate in higher and higher scales. But what happens in that process is that the system of deals that exists becomes continually updated. Here's another element of the deal-making concept uh, as, as a way that power has to operate by its nature. When a system of deals is made, those in the deal kind of naturally have a distinct, have a privileged position compared to those outside of it, right? If you are privy to the inner workings of how power works or how institutions work, what the real balance of things is in your society, then you're going to probably be able to outcompete and outorganize people who are not privy to how that system works, right? Who aren't insiders. And I think this is true in basically every society, right? You can change the sources of power. I don't think you can change that power itself exists in a society. Now, what happens as a result of that is an information asymmetry, right? That's the people who are in the privileged position have more insight into what's going on and experience than those outside of it. Okay, now what happens when those information asymmetries break down? I think one way we can describe what's happened with this uprising is that it used to be that this kind of like shorting stuff like that was stuff that maybe people on Wall Street did, normal people did not. Now we're at the point where general information about financial markets is accessible enough and people have gotten stimulus checks. And so now they like for this moment in time, this asymmetry is broken down enough that outsiders can cause a bunch of chaos because they're basically taking a system of rules and they're hacking it and they're make you know they're they're making the price signals reflect this kind of factional warfare rather than like the quote unquote real value uh, that everything is supposed to depend on. Now, what ends up happening though, in most cases, and why I think most uprisings, most revolutions fail, is that those who have spent a long time in the system of deals are already going to have a lot more experience, a lot more connections, basically a higher capacity to organize than those outside that system of deals. And so generally, when those information asymmetries break down, what we see is that, you know, in the long run, maybe not even in that far of the long run, the asymmetry is reestablished or it's broken down and, and a new one is created. So, um, you know, and, and I think people who thought this was going to go up for a while, I think a hedge fund can probably end up figuring out how to do damage control a lot quicker than a very decentralized uprising. Uh, I, I think they've probably already done this. Uh, even if they're kind of, you know, right now it was in the interest of a hedge fund to look like they don't know what they're doing uh, and, and do the reaction properly. But it, it, I think this holds in general as well. You have a system of deals and a system of information asymmetries that creates, that is at least partially is the imbalance of power. And so if you want to observe how any uprising is going to go, in most cases, those whom the uprising is against are able to outcompete those doing the uprising in maintaining or creating those asymmetries again. And so I think that that's an interesting trait of power 
that probably goes a long way to explaining how political conflicts actually operate in practice. Probably even things like why recuperation works the way it does, like why it's the top that recuperates the bottom, right? Or the inside that recuperates the outside rather than the reverse. A revolutionary is not in the position to do that sort of thing. Only those who kind of have a more privileged position in the coordinated system are able to do this. So I want to introduce this model here and kind of see where it takes us. I mean, one immediate comment is just on the hedge funds kind of taking advantage of this situation. That's what I've been kind of expecting for a while now, because, you know, maybe you hit them in the financial statements right at the beginning, but then, you know, they're quickly going to, or at least Wall Street overall is quickly going to figure out what the game is here and and figure out how to exploit your your uh, irrationality. And, and so now you have, you know, once you have all this momentum going into like, yeah, let's just buy more GameStop, let's buy more GameStop, there's probably a bunch of hedge funds who know how to uh, take that buying pressure and turn it into big financial gains for themselves. And, and this is sort of this interesting form of recuperation in a way. I mean, maybe we're stretching the concept a little bit too far there, but it's in the sense that like you have this kind of this, this sort of uprising energy against the system, but then the system's actually more nimble than you and knows a bunch of things that you don't and is able to kind of get around behind you and, you know, take your lunch, basically. Yeah, neutralize the threat. I mean, I, I wouldn't even rely on, on the recuperation concept here. Like, this is just a very straightforward outcompeting in a power battle, right, between a centralized actor and a, an actor that is decentralized, but like n- not in a beneficial way, not in the way that guerrilla forces might be. The, the, the point you made is, is that it's not just about centralization, decentralization. It's about whether you have the expertise of, you know, the craft of power, basically. Like, are you actually the entrenched expert there because you actually know what you're doing better? And, and this is sort of comes down to that information asymmetry thing. Like, if I can restate your model, it's that... Power can be broken into basically two components. One is positioning and the other one is skill. And both of these are, there's a positive feedback loop in a sense. You know, each one is able to gain more uh, of itself. So if you have a really good position, you're going to learn, you're going to train yourself up, you're going to get higher levels of skill. If you have good skill, you're going to be able to maneuver to higher levels of power. And then both of those things are also going to, uh, or at least having having a good position is also going to enable you to reinforce your position. So that that's there's kind of this feedback loop in power that that this is why power is always kind of very asymmetrical in society is because there's actually a positive feedback loop. The more power you have, the more expertise you have at wielding power, the more entrenched you are, and and you know away it goes. And then power kind of diverges back out the other way when you're starting to reach your organizational limits of how much power you can centralize and you need to delegate or you just like can't manage the thing anymore. Anyways, so that's that's like the core model of power, but more generally like about the energy that is underlying this thing, the, the populist energy I've been describing. A, a lot of it, you know, I mentioned maybe the internet is involved here. So one of the things that the internet does is it erodes the positioning asymmetry and the information asymmetry on a bunch of the ways that the current system had maintained its hegemony. 
And so the in terms of the positioning asymmetry, the fact that the people in the core of the system were able to have a robust discourse among themselves, but everyone else was more or less stuck to kind of interacting with the official sources. That's that's a huge asymmetry. And you can model that as an information asymmetry or a or just a positioning asymmetry. But then uh, more on the information asymmetry side, you had because of that, the people inside the system were able to have a much better understanding of how the thing actually works than the people outside. And so once the people outside start to catch wind of how the thing actually works, that asymmetry is falling down. And and then the the like ability to organize asymmetry as a result of just like communication bandwidth is also uh, failing. So that's why I think the introduction of the internet is kind of working against the established the established order to some extent. And and that's that's where a lot of this populist energy is coming from, right? That's that's the people getting getting these chances to go after parts of the system in ways that they couldn't previously because now they have the information and now they have the organizational capacity via the internet. Now, like you said, there's still this incredible asymmetry in ability to organ in in the 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 skill level of the players and in the all the other dimensions of power, all the other dimensions of power position. So you still have this effect where the system is going to win that fight and it's going to win it by means that are not on that vector, right? It's The system's not going to out-argue the populists. It's just going to come around and deplatform the populists um, or whatever, right? And and so there's all kinds of, of ways in which the entrenched power come around and repair their position even despite this, this problem that, that came, basically, the, the internet caused the, posed them a problem, which is, okay, now you don't have the organizational asymmetry and you don't have the information asymmetry. You, you need to recover your position. They have the means to recover the position. It's just kind of a messy process. And, and you know, we're seeing the result of that. Now, whether that ends up with something, you know, nice and business as usual coming out the other side or whether the result is something kind of decayed and even more incompetent than it was, um, that's a separate question. I sort of suspect the latter just on on the general trajectory of things right now. But that that's sort of the analysis of this like information asymmetry with respect to the internet, the populist energy overall. It's about the internet has enabled a, a, a sort of, you know, if we can use the term democratization of information and organizational ability. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.